Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In September 2022, the Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund was launched. This fund is managed by Connor Gordon and Chris Melodzinski, who are today's guests. Connor and Chris speak with host Glenn Davidson, VP Regional Sales Ontario, and today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience, on stage at a recent event for advisors held on October 26th in Toronto. Both Connor and Chris began as analysts with Fidelity in 2008. After demonstrating a strong ability to identify small-cap winners, they began managing a global small-cap fund for institutional clients three years ago, before the retail global small-cap opportunities was launched in September 2022. Connor and Chris share some more background on themselves and what they've learned initially as analysts. They also touch on the psychology around small caps, dive into the investment thesis behind their fund, explain the Fidelity Global Research resources available to them, and offer some thoughts on how this fund could fit into one's overall portfolio. Please note, as this discussion initially took place on stage at a live event, you'll hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the in-person audience. Today's podcast was recorded on October 26th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I'd love each of you to talk about yourselves, and I know you like doing that, and I know you're very excited about this new opportunity, the Global Small Cap. Why don't we bring up the slide that has an overview of Connor and Chris, and Connor, I'll go to you first uh, to give us some background on you. Yeah, you know, um, thanks everyone for being here. It's great to uh, get right in front of you. So, you know, you can see my background there, but I think the more interesting, you know, story is, you know, how I got started investing. So I grew up in, a, in Stratford, which is a smaller town, a couple hours west of here. And, you know, in Stratford, my, my mom was a server at a cafe. And every morning, my dad would take me down to the cafe and I would read the sports pages in the Toronto Star. And, you know, at one point, I must have gotten bored because I kept reading into the business section. And, you know, back in those days, that's where the stock tables were. And I became obsessed with the thought that I could own part of a business. So, you know, I took, at some point I took the money that I had in my piggy bank and I went and bought an investing book. And that investing book was One Up on Wall Street by the Fidelity Portfolio Manager, Peter Lynch. And that's kind of where I, I got the bug, the investing bug. And, you know, you fast forward almost 25 years and, you know, here I am. 10 years, I guess 10 years as an analyst and you know, three years as a portfolio manager managing small cap opportunities with Chris. Which, sorry, before I go to you, uh, which sectors did you cover? Because we were just talking to yeah. Darren about covering all sorts of sectors. Yeah, you know, you can see, so um, I started on the Canadian team, industrials, tech, and healthcare, but I kind of took a different route than many analysts do at the firm. And, you know, at the time we were, I kind of, we were launching a lot of U.S. product. So I worked very closely on the U.S. and global side doing global small cap, generalist, everything under the sun. Basically, everything outside of banks and commodities. So real businesses, nuts and bolts businesses that you can really wrap your head around, things that generate cash and that you can really value. And I think, you know, that is kind of where, you know, I cut my teeth for, you know, six, seven years doing, you know, everything under the sun. And my understanding is when you get a sector, 
It gets to the point where you think it's pretty cool, and just as you think it's pretty cool, they yank that from you and give you a new sector so you can learn it from scratch. How frequent is that? Yeah, so maybe I'll just hop yeah. in there. Uh, so it's every three years. I mean, the traditional way that we mm. do it among the Canadian team is uh, every analyst sees you know three super sectors before they become a diversified portfolio manager. So I've been here going on my 15th year now, um, and it's good to be back in person. The last time I did one of these was in uh, 2011, so going back a long way as an analyst back then. And so, yeah, I covered, uh, you know, the generally, so three super sectors, it's a commodity, it's a stock picking uh, group, but as well as it's a financial. So I started off doing uh, metals and mining for three years uh, back in the, uh, the boom times uh, coming out of the global financial crisis um, and then rotated on to uh, consumer media and telecom and then uh, on to uh, real estate and insurance. And maybe going back a little bit about myself uh, prior to joining, I spent a few years in uh, at UBC. I'm from Barrie, Ontario, so an hour north of here. I went out to UBC and they had this really good value uh, uh, investing program. And so I spent a few years managing uh, the school's uh, endowment money. Um, so it came from a real, you know, value principle focus and, you know, spending 15 years at Fidelity, you get to see, you know, how different portfolio managers with different styles really manage and, set, you know, sitting next to Mark Schmel for the last uh, few years, really focusing on change and really focusing on fundamentals and what really moves stocks. So, you know, it's not just the the value growth of the business, the earnings growth of the business, but it's also the market perception. And so that's what we really focus on, which we're going to get into later. But we try to underwrite both of those to you know generate returns above the index. It's not only the superior earnings growth, but it's also the market attributing a higher multiple to that earnings stream. Global small cap opportunity. I'm I'm scared because when I hear small <laughs> caps, I think that sounds nice, but I don't know that I want to go there yet. Let's touch on your thoughts around the psychology around small caps, and then we'll get into what the portfolio is all about. Yeah, sure. You know, I think, you know, many many people, you hear small caps, you hear global, you're like, oh my God, why would I buy this? And, you know, I think small cap, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a fallacy. And I think if you look at our fund, small cap, the average market cap in the fund is five and a half billion dollars US. The average Canadian small cap is $350 million. So, you know, we are buying businesses that are 10, 15 times the size of, you know, you brought up the two guys with a map, you know, in Calgary pointing at a hole. You know, that's not what we're investing in. These are, you know, big proven businesses, you know, lots of revenues, generate boatloads of cash, have management teams that can take that cash, reinvest it in the business to make, the biz- to make that business value grow over time. So, you know, and I think even five and a half billion, you know, a, a small cap, and when we think of small cap and global, you know, is probably more like a large cap in the Canadian context. If you were to put that against the TSX 60, you'd actually get into the bottom end. So, um, you know, and when people think of risk, um, you shouldn't think that way when you're thinking about global small cap. These are these are big businesses, relatively, that still have a ton of ton of runway, a ton of ton of room for growth. And yeah, I guess if you just look at the portfolio today and the way it's constructed, it's really a sleep at night portfolio. So you know, top tier management teams like Hunter just mentioned, you know, businesses that generate a ton of cash and they reinvest that at really high rates of return going forward. But furthermore, it's it's the financial profile of the companies. You know, they run at really low to no leverage. A lot of the companies have net cash on their balance sheet. So in a choppy market environment, uh, these management teams can really take advantage of inorganic opportunities um, to deploy their balance sheet and further augment, obviously, their organic profile uh, to, to accelerate and steal market share, um, you know, on the other side of any given downturn. All right. I feel a bit better. Um, why don't we put the slide up that shows what the um, global small cap opportunities structure and reason for being is. 
And Chris, I'll go to you just to talk about process and how this came about. Sure, yeah. Connor touched on a number of these just now, but you know, I just want to hammer home the point that you know we're looking at great businesses. So we want to invest in like super high quality businesses, generate really high return on invested capital, really high margins, really high free cash flow margins. I think that's important. So, you know, through any given, you know economic downturn, these, these companies are still generating a lot of cash. So I think that's pretty important um, to say. And we want simple, predictable, and highly recurring revenue. So businesses that we can model out over a long period of time and can really have a lot of confidence in that terminal value. So we're looking for mispricings. We're looking for situations where we can value that business. We can look at the market price and we can say, hey, there's a disconnect here. And furthermore, we look for that change where the market's going to recognize that disconnect um, and then attribute a, a higher value to that share price. And then, you know, things we look to avoid, sectors that are really uh, competitive, that change a lot, um, those are harder to underwrite. Those are harder to get a really high degree of confidence on that 10-year cash flow. Uh, commodities, we're generally underexposed to, you know, materials and energy. Like, I spent a lot of time uh, covering materials, and I can tell you it gives me a greater appreciation for high-quality businesses. You know, I remember being on a trip, a uh, Fidelity-sponsored trip to uh, South Africa to visit a lot of these platinum miners, and they were bragging about how much money they were putting into the ground. And this is shareholder capital that they were saying that, hey, we're spending $7 billion to sink these shafts into the ground with an uncertain return because you're dependent on commodity prices. So, you know, that's scary. Those are businesses that we want to avoid, and we want to gravitate to, you know, the higher-quality businesses and then... If, if the business is in secular decline, that's also an area we want to avoid. Uh, because if you're not growing, you're dying, and the share price is going to reflect that. Darren talked about how he utilizes the team around the world to get into some interesting areas. How do you both utilize the team globally? Yeah, so you know, one of the great, you know, we were talking about global, we're talking about small caps. Small caps are a very inefficient, alpha-rich asset class. And one of the great things about Fidelity is that we have 140 analysts around the world. So it doesn't matter where we're investing. You know, we have boots in the ground in every, in every geography. So when we are, you know, I think that we've tried to condition the analysts to, to you know, this, this criteria, focus on quality, but more importantly, focus on change. So we leverage all those analysts around the world to try and find mispricings, to find the best ideas that we can, regardless, the, you know, the, the stocks that are most mispriced, regardless of where they happen to be headquartered. So, you know, I think that's, that's a, a big advantage of fidelity, having people on the ground and then filtering that back up to us. Um, you know, I think the, you know, talk about the research package, you know, back in, you know, when we started, you used to get this research package that, you know, could give you a concussion if it hit, hit you on the head. It's all digital now. But, you know, my day starts at 5 a.m. You know, I get up with my kids and the first thing I start to do is I, you know, on the lines, I start flipping through the research. What, what got published last night in Japan and Europe? You know, what's going on? And, and everything we kind of flip through, you know, the template is, you know, at the top, everything's summarized. And we're really looking for these things. It could be, you know, we're looking for things like, you know, when we talk about change, positive change, it's, okay, is there a new product? Is this company launching a new product? Are they entering a new geography? Maybe it's been an underperforming business and they finally got a better management team. You know, the board's kicked out the management team. They've got someone new. Maybe they're making an acquisition. You know, on the temporary dislocation side, you know, maybe they've got a price call. The company reports earnings. The stock's down 25%. It looks like it's a disaster. But hey, you know what? It's price cost. You know that's a big that's a big theme these days with a lot of industrial companies. They can't raise prices fast, or they can't raise prices as fast as the costs are going up. But it's temporary. If you look at six, twelve months, they'll get it back. And these are kind of the opportunities that we're looking for. Things that are down 30 percent, maybe in a day. People are running away scared. Maybe we need to do the work. We we call the analyst. We set up a call. We do a call with the company. Make sure everything's okay. 
maybe we start putting capital to work. Yeah, and obviously a big benefit for a global fund having a global research platform. So just to put some numbers around this, uh, over 200 analysts um, across the globe at Fidelity International, um, as well as FMR, which we get their research on a delay. I think that's also a huge benefit to running a global fund. So, you know, if I'm trying to get up to up to speed on a company in Europe, uh, I can just go go on our global note system, and I can have 20 years um, of historical research published. So I can see how every analyst has viewed this over the last 20 years, and you know, it's a huge benefit. And you know, Darren touched on earlier, um, you know, having Teams, Microsoft Teams, everything's digital now, so everyone's very responsive. So if we're looking at a business in the U.S. and it has a, a division over in Australia um, that we want to value, we can just you know um, go on Teams and get in touch with our Australian analyst and you know have a real time conversation. Just from a, a logistics standpoint, on how this came to be, the two of you weren't walking down the hall and Andrew Marchese said, "Hey, by the way, let's launch this and then get in front of everybody and talk about it." There was, as Dave talked about, it's been run institutionally. We also pilot this for a while before we introduce it to our advisor partners. So can you talk about how that comes together and how long we do that for? Yeah, so um, it's been in pilot form. So you're talking about the institutional trust since uh, 2019, right? Yeah, so so we put this together. So I guess the genesis of, of why us two, we touched on it a little bit earlier, is our complementary backgrounds, right? So Connor has expertise in healthcare um, and industrials. I'm more on the consumer side, financials um, and materials. And so, you know, putting us two together with uh, a similar view of the world, similar investment style makes a lot of sense. So if I'm trying to get up to speed on a healthcare name, you know, Connor's right here, I can be like, hey, should I, you know, spend some time on this? Is it interesting? And he can, you know, look at it. Uh, after 10, 15 minutes, he can give me um, a, a yes or no. So similar on you know what I cover, um, what I've covered as an analyst. Um, if Connor's doing some uh, you know work on a real estate name, I can give him either a yes or no, and uh, we and we can go from there. So I think that's that's the important thing. That's why he put us together is because we have you know similar styles and a very complementary background. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. But, yeah. Perfect. Let's go to the slide that talks about growth versus value. Uh, in style. Uh, and Connor, let's go to you as far as what, how is this being run from a growth and value? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a popular question. And I think everyone wants to put you in a box. And you know, the unsatisfying answer is that we are neither growth nor value. We are core style agnostic investors. And you know, what I mean by that is we start with that baseline of quality. So quality to us, is, you know, three things. <laughs> Profitability, predictability, and growth. And, you know, we have our list of companies, companies that we've met over time, companies that the analysts have pitched us, you know, a few hundred companies, and then we wait. We wait for change and dislocation to create mispricing. And the mispricing is what allows us to generate above average returns. And I think, you know, we say mispricing, and I think it seems, it might be a little abstract. So I think, you know, an example might be a good way to just illustrate what do we do day to day? What are the types of ideas that we're looking at? So, a company that we've invested in historically is DeMont. And this is a Danish hearing aid company. There's only four or five companies in the world that make hearing aids. They're all basically in Europe. So, you know, medical device company, super high margin, capital light, great secular trends. You know, population is aging. More people are getting hearing aids. They're becoming destigmatized. So that adoption curve is actually accelerating. You know, I covered this stock for probably 10 years when I was back when I was a healthcare analyst. And there was a problem. The problem for us as you know, value-oriented investors is stock was always too expensive, 20, 25, 30 times earnings. You know, we just couldn't wrap our heads around it. But right around the time that we launched the Institutional Trust in 2019, the company got hit with a cyber attack. 
right? So that is a dislocation. The, you know, investors are running away from this company because they don't know what's going to happen. They can't ship. Their ERP system's all screwed up. The next two quarters look terrible. The stock trades down to 15 times earnings. Okay, that's the that's the kind of the value we're buying this, and we get the opportunity to buy this amazing business, high single digit growth potential, probably t- double digit you know profit growth, and we get to buy it at a market or below market multiple, so we pounce on it, and you know it works out pretty well. The stock goes from one seventy to three fifty. We double our money in eighteen months, and you know we double our money because guess what? Cyber attacks they're not permanent. You know if they screw up a couple quarters, it doesn't matter six twelve months from now, and things actually got better. Because we knew that they had a product cycle coming. And, the, and just from an industry dynamic perspective, you know, uh, the, the hearing aid companies launched, launched new products on a, on a two or three year cycle. So all of a sudden, right as this was happening, they had the market leading product. They took a ton of share. Revenues accelerated. The stock went from 15 times earnings to 30 times earnings. They re-rated back to where it was. These are the types of you know, high quality businesses that we're looking for. But then we wait and we're really patient and wait for that dislocation to create that, that, that discount to intrinsic value. And then we hop on. And I think, you know, one of the things I think it's kind of going back to the growth versus value, we're really focused on idiosyncratic opportunities. And it's really important because one of our, you know, our core beliefs is that we want to generate consistent performance. And, you know, so when you focus on these idiosyncratic opportunities, we can grind out returns over time. And we are not dependent on making a big, you know, style or factor bet to drive all the performance. Maybe I could just make a point on the attractiveness of the asset class as well. Um, so I don't know if we have a slide on it or not, but uh, there's only roughly six sell-side analysts that, uh, that cover the average company in the index um, versus roughly 20 for the S&P. Um, and I won't mention the, the name in the fund, but we have a, a holding in, in the fund that actually has zero coverage. And, uh, you know, in their SEC filings, you know, they've publicly stated that they're looking to like, liquidate the company in the next year and a half to two years. And they give the price. They say that we think, you know, we've got third-party appraisals. We think it's worth X. And that stock in the market today is trading at a 70% discount to that. So you get all these inefficient mispricings in the asset class because you know, the market's just not paying attention. So, you know, having, you know, our global research platform as well, both of us and our historical experience, we're able to kind of capitalize on these, uh, these mispriced opportunities. Given that and given the GARP approach or the fact that you're not stuck to a style, Connor, where does it fit in uh, an overall portfolio? Yeah, you know, I think we launched this product a few weeks ago and just, you know, our conversations with, you know, a lot of clients, you know, we kind of get the sense that, you know, small caps and, you know, global small caps in particular are underweight in many client portfolios. And, you know, I think for most people, you know, we're not going to suggest that this is a replacement for a core TSX or S&P 500 strategy, but it's a very alpha rich asset class. And, you know, I think when you take that, the, the fact that it's an alpha-rich uh, asset class, you take our track record, you take the resources, the Fidelity research machine, you know, I think it can create, because we can create a lot of alpha, that's a nice complement to a core allocation in a client portfolio. You said earlier, it's alpha-rich and it's inefficient. And it's inefficient because of the lack of coverage generally from other companies? It's inefficient because there's just not a lot of eyeballs on these yeah. on these opportunities, and, and and like these are not illiquid situations either. Like that that uh, prior example, that's a several billion dollar enterprise value. I mean, it's not a two hundred million dollar you know micro cap energy explorer, for example. So you know, despite that, um, because it is global in nature, it's it's extremely inefficient, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, I think you know you'd be surprised when you when you get away from large caps, like you know like Royal Bank. You know, I don't know how many analysts are on Royal Bank or. Microsoft, right? You got 50, 50 sell side analysts. Like, 
you know, it's hard to, 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 to generate an edge. But, you know, you might go like DeMont or, you know, you might find a, a two, three billion dollar euro company, European company that has, you know, no sell side analysts or one sell side analyst. They might not even, they might not even have, you know, conference calls. You know, they, you know, many cases, you know, a company that we won't kind of fit that profile, no sell side analyst, no conference calls. They don't even have a person that does IR. So like you got it, you know, the, the person that's doing all the IR calls is like the CFO and they like don't want to talk to you because it's a family, you know, family controlled holding company. You know, these are the types of things that, you know, get it really get us energized because, okay, no one's looking at this. People are running away from it. These are where the mispricings happen. This is where how you generate above average returns. I might be off base with asking this, but I'm going to anyway. So multi-trillion dollar fidelity calls one of these companies. They're not used to talking to people. Are they going to be more transparent than a company that's really got a lot of IR and they're really used to a lot of how these meetings go? I mean, are we going to be able to squeeze more out of a company meeting? We have different perspectives on this, but I actually find them uh, extremely responsive to Fidelity because I think maybe it's our, our brand. Uh, like, I don't have experience at a lot of other buy side shops. I've been at Fidelity for 15 years, but I think one of the great things about the company is that we have a great reputation and companies are looking for long-term shareholders, supportive shareholders. And so when we email them or reach out, uh, they're quite responsive. So it gives us that, that huge edge uh, versus the competition. Responsive, I get, but transparent as well because they're they're just not used to people, look, perhaps people probably, putting on a facade. People are probably like, no one's going to. We're never going to get not material, not public information, and if we do get it, we're not going to act right, on it. Right. Um, you know, the first call after a meeting like that is to compliance. However, you know, I think meeting with Microsoft, where you know they might probably have their you know three IR people and a lawyer in the room when you're you know at a big, at a big conference. You know, no one you know they are going to basically repeat what they said on the earnings call. You know, I think it's it's less about Sometimes you, know, you meet a company, and one of the great things is like they're much more candid at just about how does the business work? What are the segments? You know, how do these businesses actually work? How do they fit into the industry? I think there are, people are a lot more candid. And then I think one of the things that we can do then is when you have more information about a business, we can cross-reference it. So one of the things that we do we have access to is we use a lot of expert networks. So you know, expert networks, we can connect with ex-customers, ex ex-employees, industry experts, and we can cross-reference all the information and triangulate information from multiple information sources to kind of get to the truth and kind of get the, the best representation of the earnings power of the business and put a valuation on that business. You two seem to get along okay, but you're both running this portfolio. How do you deal with day-to-day? How do you divide and conquer? And do you argue much? Like, How, does this, how do you come together with a, a stock that goes in a portfolio? Yeah, so I think the the benefit to this fund is that there's uh, you know mutual decision making. So you know we each obviously collaborate each and every day. But um, if Connor wants to put an idea in the fund, it goes in the fund. If I want to put an idea in the fund, it goes in the fund. It's similar with selling. You know, if if it's uh, if it's you in make the fund a case. Though. I mean, there's a yeah. I mean, look, there's like, devil's advocate. I mean, yeah, you know, as you know, kind of touched on it before, but complementary backgrounds. Uh, you know, my focus kind of, you know, consumer, business services, tech, industrials. Krista, you know, has done consumer, maybe some of more of the materials, maybe some more on um, the financials. And I think we each have our sphere of expertise. But one of the great things that we have is, you know, we kind of defer to one another on the areas of expertise that we have. And that's, you know, one of the great benefits of that is that when you put it together in a portfolio, there's a really nice complement. There's a really nice balance in the fund. And, you know, I think that's really been shown in, in the, you know, the consistency of our performance. I'm not sure. I think the most recent slide we have is, you know, I think we, we put up positive excess returns in like 95% of all rolling periods. So, you know, kind of regardless of what happens in the ex- external environment, 
you know, our goal, you know, you asked about style, like we want to make money regardless of what's going on in the macro environment. Yeah. So it's experts kind of across all different sectors. And to the prior point, I mean, especially in a volatile environment, the way it's structured is a, is a huge benefit. Um, Cause I think a lot of competing funds, they need to sit down and actually agree on every single decision that's made in the fund. And um, you know, when you have a COVID environment where, um, you know, stocks are moving up and down 10% a day. Uh, if you have to do that, the opportunity is just going to pass you by. Okay. So you both have a good discussion. You put stocks in a portfolio. This question really hits into that then. And A, how big is the investment yeah. universe? How many stocks will be in a portf- in the portfolio? Right. So how concentrated? Yeah. So it's a, it's a big universe, over 6,000 names in the index. And uh, I think, I don't know if it was on the slide earlier, but it's 40 to 80 names is, is what we target. So very concentrated. It's a global go anywhere, best ideas fund. So, you know, we're not like looking over at the UK, there's a new PM. So we're just going to, you know, go and overweight the UK or the Japanese yen's getting crushed. So, you know, we think it offers good value. So we're going to go and buy Japan. It's, it's more of a, you know, hundred percent bottoms up just because it trades in Stockholm um, or trades in, you know, Japan that, that gives us a, a great opportunity to go there. So if you look at the way the, the fund is, I guess, structured globally right now, we're overweight, North America, I think it's 60, 65% in the index, and we're north of 70, with the remainder uh, being in um, mainly in Europe, as well as a little bit in Japan and, and one emerging market name. So I would just say that, you know, on the risk aspect, we're not going to go to emerging markets in general. You're not going to see us have a big, you know, emerging market uh, waiting. Like if it doesn't have a strong rule of law, respect for private capital, we're not going to put um, clients' uh, money at risk in those geographies. So we have a strong home bias, and the further we go uh, from North America, the, the higher the hurdle rate is. I would say, though, right now with you know global markets under pressure, that um, you know that's an area we're spending a lot more time on because not only are um, stock prices depressed, but also you know currencies are under pressure, so it's you know demonstrating a lot more value. Uh, I would say, though, you know, when we go into these other markets, they're not all like, pure plays on Europe. So, you, Connor talked about DeMont. Uh, there are other, uh, you know, companies in niche industries uh, that sell globally, but, you know, they may happen to be headquartered um, in Sweden, for example, right? So, you know, it's not a pure play on the Sweden market, but the, you know, the company just happens to be headquartered there. And the benefit to doing that is that a lot of times, you know, these markets come with a, a more pessimistic investor base. Um, so I would say the U.S. in general is is more you know, optimistic and that comes with higher multiples. But when you go into these other markets, you get a company that sells a lot into the U.S. Um, at a much lower multiple just because, you know, they're more exposed to a pessimistic investor base. So a home market bias, therefore a quality bias. How does currency factor in? Yeah, the way I think about currency, like, you know, investing is a long term game. So I always, you know, look on a three to five year view. Um, and if we do our jobs, you know, with bottom up security selection and are, under, are able to underwrite decent um, IRRs, then currency kind of, you know, it all kind of factors out in the wash. So you can compound, you know, at 20% uh, over five years. And if the currency goes against you by 30%, you're still delivering 12%. So, um, you know, that's the way we think about it is we, we just look for the best kind of risk reward opportunities and then the currencies will kind of just take care of themselves. And, you know, we're looking at a developed markets in general, right? Like you can go to, you know, emerging markets and, you know, currency can devalue, uh, you know, very quickly in a very short period of time. But that's not what this this fund is designed to do is, is fish in those ponds. Connor, ESG, where does that factor into the decision making? Yeah, it's you know, definitely a you know, relevant or top of the topic. First and foremost, we are not a sustainable fund, but... As you probably know, ESG is integrated into all of Fidelity's analyst research. Um, and, you know, I think the way that we view ESG is an enhanced risk mitigation framework. So if you had asked me five years ago, 
you know, how do you view risk when you look at a company? You know, we probably would have responded, okay, you know, technology risk, competitive risk, you know, balance sheet risk, valuation risk. Those are kind of the broad buckets. And I think, you know, now with everything that we, when we research, all these things, you know, all these topics are integrated. And I think we are, you know, they are explicitly outlined. So, you know, from an environmental perspective, from a social perspective, and from a governance perspective. I think Chris and I put a really big emphasis, particularly on governance. And, you know, I think Darren said, you know, this is something we've always done at Fidelity, engage with managements, engage with boards. But we put a really big emphasis on, you know, management track record and management incentives. I think in general, the best predictor of future performance or future behavior is past behavior. So looking at the track record of the management team, how have they performed, how have they allocated capital, don't necessarily pay attention to what they say they're going to do. Pay attention to what they have done. Um, and then secondly is, is incentives. If you want to know how someone's going to act, pay attention to how they get paid. And you know, like we, we spend a lot of time with proxies and you know, understanding the incentive structure. How do they get paid? What are the, what are the KPIs that they're getting paid on? You can, probably, you can, you can kind of be rest assured that you know, the, that's how they're going to perform. And I think you know, we're really focused on returns. And, you know, how does management reinvest that capital? And, they, you know, management teams ultimately are salespeople. They are going to, you know, the CEO gets to, you know, typically get, gets there because he's good at pitching the company. And they will, they will tell you they have, you know, IR people that, have, you know, know what investors want to hear. And they'll, they will tell you, yeah, we do high returns. It's like, well, okay. Well, then why does your proxy just say, you know, you get paid on the size of the company? It doesn't matter, you know, not earnings per share, not return on invested capital. It's like you just get paid. The bigger you get more you get paid. What do you think you're going to do? You're going to blow a bunch of money on acquisitions, right? Guaranteed. Um, so, you know, track record and incentives are something we really place an emphasis on, on the governance side of that ESG question. There is a huge team, and Darren talked about it, a team at FIL in London that are focused on ESG. What size is that team now? I don't even know. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I would stress that every single analyst that, that covers uh, any given name also has ESG ratings. So, as you were saying, it's factored into our research. Yeah, it's, it's factored in, right? So, yeah, everything we look at is you know fundamental plus an ESG. Um, and so, you know, just because it has a bad ESG rating, like we're not we're not going to dismiss it. Um, we're going to kind of factor that into kind of the hurdle rate, right? It'll, it'll affect the cost of capital. So, a lot of times, though, we we disagree with with ESG ratings. So. You know, if a company is is founder led and that founder has a lot of control, um, but he has a lot of his own net worth in the company, he's obviously going to act in shareholders' best interest. But from a governance standpoint, um, that actually screens very poorly. So MSCI as well as internal will will kind of ding you for that. But um, you know, it, it, it could, it's not necessarily a negative having a negative ESG rating. You just got to kind of—it's all nuanced. So you got to like kind of dig in, lift 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 the hood up, and, could be and see why. Doing something about yeah, it. I think you know it's more you know well, to, to the point on you know being risk aware, you know, knowing that these things are present and kind of going into a situation with your, you know, eyes wide open and not getting um, surprised by something or a bomb going off. Speaking of risk aware, Johnny, could you bring up the slide called the case for small caps, please? So we talked about this earlier when I told you I'm frightened because it's called small caps. We didn't have this slide up, but do you want to just talk about anything around this that really does set the scene for the case for small caps today? Yeah. I think we both could probably, but I would just say quickly, um, you know, it's trading obviously at historically low valuation. So if you look at, uh, you know, our index, the global uh, small cap index, it's uh, just over 11, 11 times um, excluding like loss making companies. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's higher than that uh, when you include them. But I would say that uh, in general, um, the way that the fund is structured, it's obviously... 
a great time. We can also see like what, what share prices are doing. Stocks are down, especially you know, small caps are, are down even more. But you know, we focus on um, on higher quality names. So our um, our portfolio would be a little higher than the index average on on a PE basis. But uh, that comes with obviously a lot better growth opportunities um, and a lot better kind of financial profile. Um, if you, will. I don't know if that. Yeah, I mean, two things. You know, I think over a very long period of time, small caps have performed large. Uh, small caps have performed large caps. I think you know there's a lot of macro uncertainty out there. Maybe we're going into an environment where macro might be a bit of a headwind. I think you need to be in small caps. You need to be in companies that have an idiosyncratic growth profile that can power through, even if we do have a period of of macroeconomic headwinds. Um, you know, secondly, small caps have already been hit. So, you know, Chris touched on it, but, you know, if you exclude money losing companies, and we'll just take S&P and the Russell to keep the U.S. and keep it consistent. But you know, the S&P 500, I think the, the earnings multiple is, you know, 15, 16 times earnings. The Russell, it's already derated. You know, you're 10, 11 times earnings. These stocks have already been hit. Um, you know, and I think that's why we're finding, you know, more and more opportunities the last month or two months is, you know, there is, there is a ton of dislocation. I think, there, you know, you, you can't look across the world and say there's any more market that is already more dislocated than global small caps. And that's great for us because we can put money to work and, and kind of have those stocks where we think there's really high embedded returns, um, you know, kind of, you know, ignoring what's going to happen in the next month or two months. And I think just going back qualitatively, alpha rich asset class, combine that with Fidelity's research advantage. I think there's, you know, a ton of opportunity to deliver alpha above market returns, regardless of what's going on in the macro environment. I'm kind of sensing excitement about timing on this whole opportunity. Why don't we go to the last slide, Johnny, the one on um, uh, global, just the overview of Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund. Uh, Chris, I'll go to you first. What's a key takeaway you want to leave the audience with today? Yeah, there's a few. Number one, obviously, we, we, we invest, um, you know, not more than 5% cash. So we want to be fully invested. I mean, that's the advisor decision is, is to make that cash allocation. So, you know, if you uh, give it to, to us, we're going to, you know, look for the best ideas uh, all around the world. But I, I guess the key kind of uh, final point that I want to leave everyone with is that, you know, my whole career, uh, Fidelity more or less, um, over the last 15 years has been about beta, you know, the highest beta wins um, under a zero interest rate um, environment. And so, you know, if you took on more risk, you, you got rewarded for it. And I think you can make a strong case that the next 10 years is going to be very different um, than the last 10. Um, and so if we're not in a, uh, in a you know, beta environment, we're in an alpha environment. And that's exactly what this, uh, this fund is structured to do is to deliver alpha and to look for those mispricings. Um, and so if you take that as, as given, um, you know, we're going to wake up every day and uh, look for those best opportunities and uh, continue to deliver that alpha. Cool. Yeah, I'll tell you why I'm invested in the fund. So, you know, global, uh, maximize the size of the opportunity set. Small cap, maximize the inefficiency of the opportunity set. Okay, you combine that with our track record, the Fidelity Research Machine, and you package all those ideas into a best ideas called 50 core holding portfolio. We think we have something you know, that is really set up to generate really good returns. And more importantly, maybe more importantly, you know, consistent returns for clients. And that's really what we're focused on. High returns, consistent returns. And I think we have a really good chance of doing that. Chris, Connor, sounds like a well-deserved opportunity uh, and, we'll, it's a, and with perfect timing for launch. So, And I know there's a lot of excitement behind it. So congratulations on the opportunity. Thanks for speaking with us today. Chris and Connor. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.